0: Oh yes, hello humans. Welcome back to Modern Wisdom. My guest today is Jason Calacanis, the man behind the This Week in Startups and Angel podcast, invested in Uber, Thumbtack, Wealthfront, Datastax, Robinhood, Calm, and over 200 others. And I wanted to learn how angel investing and Silicon Valley works. I hear it on the news all the time, people making the millions out there in Silicon Valley, but I do not have a clue. I don't know what Series A shares are. I don't know about seed capital or any of that stuff. So I wanted to ask him, said, hey, Jason, teach me about angel investing. So today, that's exactly what you're going to get to learn. In other news, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Surfshark VPN. Surfshark VPN is a service which allows you to change the location of where you are browsing and right now, given the fact that most of the world is in some form of social isolation slash lockdown of some kind or another, I can only imagine the traffic that Netflix is getting. You will have undoubtedly already watched everything that is good on Netflix, so download Surfshark VPN and you will be able to access the entire world's Netflix library. America has fantastic Netflix. If you're American, the British Netflix isn't too bad either. And then there's probably French Netflix. I have no idea what they've got. But you can get 83% off and an extra month for free by going to surfshark.deals/ Modern Wisdom, or just follow the link in the show notes below. It works out at like £1.59 a month or something to essentially supercharge your Netflix. And right now, combating boredom is probably top of everyone's priorities. So for the sake of £1.59 a month, deals slash Wisdom. But for now, please welcome Jason Calacanis. Jason Calacanis in the building. How are you?
1: What, what? How are you doing? Fantastic. Thanks for having me on the pod.
0: You are in the most beautiful studio that I think I've ever yeah. seen.
1: And you're in your and you're in your bedroom. I am, that is With true. a lighthouse poster. With a what? With a lighthouse poster behind you. With I a
0: lighthouse it. poster indeed, that is. But you know, we're, yeah. all, we're all starting somewhere.
1: With a wave crashing around it.
0: it it's very—it's chaos, right? What were we talking about just before we started? There's some chaos going on here.
1: Chaos. Well, wait, wh- where is that lighthouse?
0: I'm not sure. I'm Does it not have sure.
1: some specific meaning? No, <laughs> no, I'm not. What would Freud say about picking a lighthouse on the edge of ex- human existence that's being pummeled by giant waves? What would that say about a man who puts that as the first thing he sees when he wakes up, and the last thing he sees when he goes to bed.
0: Can you tell that I'm a, a bit an, of a loner? Can you tell that I'm an only child, Jason?
1: It, it does scream, "I'm alone at the edge of existence." Yes.
0: Can you tell that I'm? Th- but
1: maybe you're opting into it. See, that's the thing about lighthouse operators; they're opting into it. Nobody's forcing there. It's not a jail. So there's a certain type of person who wants that solitude. Jason, who you- wants that that gig.
0: Incredibly, uh, incredibly perceptive, my friend.
1: There you go. All oh, right. No, well, you. welcome to this week in Freud. <laughs> uh, okay, go ahead. For sure, man. Don't let me take it over in the first thirty seconds. That's fine.
0: Do you? Fi- so here's a question for you. I podcasting as a host, which you are. Do you find it odd being on the other side of the mic? Sometimes you slip into host mode.
1: Uh, I do slip into host mode sometimes, and I do start thinking like, "No, this is the question you should ask." And <laughs> if you, you know, if you want me to answer that question, you asked me four questions. Just. The second one is the winner. That's what the audience actually wants to hear. Or, why didn't you ask me this follow-up question? Yes, that does go through my mind sometimes. It happens. It makes it very hard for me to listen to other podcasts because it becomes so obvious to me when the person who's doing conducting the interview doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> and then it really makes it amazing when you listen to you know Howard Stern interviewing Hillary Clinton or Joe Rogan interviewing Sam Harris or Sam Harris interviewing anybody you know you start to realize wow some people are really great at this right and they all have different styles and stylistically you know many different styles work in some cases it's very difficult for me when i know more than the subject that was the thing i had to unlock as an interviewer sometimes i have somebody who's a guest and they know less about the topic we're talking about than i do that doesn't often happen but let's say it's angel investing or media or something where I've spent, you know, a decade or two doing it, and they're a young founder, I they're actually deferring to me. And sometimes they might say, Well, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, and that's problematic. In fact, Evan Williams, who is very good at media, but I think, you know, where he's more successful than I am, having done Twitter and Medium and Blogger. But, you know, I I, I created better editorial brands than him, certainly with engage and the Speaking Startups, like singular editorial properties. So we have like long conversations. And when I interviewed him, Every time I'd ask a question, I'd say, well, what do you think? You did, you did these other publications. You know, you did Silicon Eye Reporter. What do you think? <laughs> i like, well, you're on stage in front of 2,000 people right now. I'm the interviewer. So sometimes with people who are my friends or whatever, I'll just say, hey, listen, I might ask you a basic question that you know I know the answer to or that you might be interested in my answer, but uh, just humor me for the sake of the audience. And, and sometimes even interview, I'll say, hey, for the sake of the audience, can you explain what this is? And I added that to my repertoire because every time I'd say, What's, you know, uh a C what's the what's a CPM? Explain CPM. They'd be like, You don't know what CPM is and you've been in the advertising business all the time. I was like, no, I know the audience. So then I have this way of coaching it and framing the question, explain to the audience or explain to somebody who doesn't know what CPM means. Cost per thousand, right? Anyway, uh, you have to you learn. I think somewhere after two or 300 of these like interviews, you'll get good at it. <laughs> the problem is most people in life... No, I mean, it's not a joke either. I mean, I think a lot of people in life think like, well, I've done 10 podcast episodes. Like, here we go. Where's my... You know, why, why are the ads not sold? And it's like, mm, you might want to get to year three or four. You know, you might want to get 100, 200, 300 reps under your belt. Everybody thinks like they go to the... You know, they, they shoot 100 three-pointers and that they're Steph Curry. It's, it's not exactly how it works. Maybe if you shoot, like, you know, a 1,000 a day for 100 days, you you know, you might start to understand what shooting involves. What, know, somewhere around the 100,000.
0: What, what makes a good people. podcaster, then?
1: The best podcasters, in my estimation, are people who can't work for anybody else and who don't want to work for anybody else and who are fearless, Um, And they have some level of respect from their audience. So if you look at Joe Rogan, if you look at Ben Shapiro, if you look at Brett Easton Ellis, if you look at the Red Scare, Dasha and Anna, if you look at um, Sam Harris, uh, Leo Laporte, any of those folks, they are not working for anybody but themselves. You cannot aggregate them into a podcast company. God knows people have tried. Bill Simmons uh, as well. They are singular voices who don't answer to anybody and so authentically connected with their audience that you know they're going to say what they believe no matter what. And I think this goes to, you know, the influence Howard Stern had on the the, the format of radio. Howard Stern was somebody considered a shock jock in the 80s and 90s in New York City and uh, eventually went across the country here in America. And he would do shocking stuff, you know, he would have strippers on the podcast, he would have, uh, you know, a Ku Klux Klan member on the podcast. He's very outrageous. Um, but then he kind of evolved and you started realizing, wow, he's so authentic and his interview style is so incredible that he gets people to share things that nobody else does. And they feel comfortable doing that. And, and that had, a, I think, a, a deep impact on me. Not the strippers and the Ku Klux Klan members, but the latter, which is... He's authentic, right? You know what he's saying is real. I think Charlie Rose also had that uh, when he was on air. You know, you knew he was like actually reading the books or cared about the topics. He was an intellectual, a public intellectual who wanted to have these like really incredible discussions. Morley Safer, Oprah Winfrey. You know, there's a cohort of people who just got really good at interviewing people, and and you can see that in podcasting. The reason podcasting is getting so popular right now is because the press and journalism and media is so broken. And that's leading to people wanting to, if you're a subject who was in the press a lot, like Sam Harris was in the press a lot or Joe Rogan might be or Leo Laporte might be or Bill Simmons, you know, they were essentially throttled or mediated through the press. And when they got on a podcast as the host, now there's nobody editing them. Then you have their guests on and then the guests are like, wait a second, you're going to give me three hours to explain my point, two hours an hour, and I'm going to get misquoted by a journalist. and this is why journalism is really struggling right now is that the people who know the most are going direct to the audience. and journalists, by definition, only on, know five, 10, 20 percent of the story. That's why they have to do research, that's why they have to hit the pavement. But because they don't control distribution anymore and they only have 10 or 20 percent knowledge of the situation, they can't compete with the people who are on the inside. They can't compete with people like me who, you know, invest in these companies. They don't have the knowledge base I have. The journalists can't. They're not doing it every day. Right. And I was a journalist. I was a founder. And now I'm an investor. And I'm still, you know, quasi-journalist doing my podcast. So it's really a really fascinating time. Um and I think podcasting is a reaction to link baiting, SEO driven content, content farming, and just the collapse of newspapers and magazines and those editorial formats, websites, where people don't do fact-checking and they write link-baiting stories. People are tired of that nonsense and they want to go to the depth of a podcast where people feel that they're not going to be misquoted because I just gave you a six-minute answer to your question as opposed to you gave me two lines in your story and just pick the ones that you think are the you know, most interesting or you know, most likely to get retweeted.
0: The thing as well is that the ability to have time to play with ideas, right? To sandbox with ideas, to be subtle and nuanced and and say something which you isn't even quite formed. Whereas if you were to do an interview with a reporter and you play around with an idea which isn't quite formed and then that gets transcribed, that's precisely the, the loophole that they were looking for, right?
1: Um, I think so. I think that's exactly right. Cool.
0: So mm-hmm. I want to ask everybody that's listening will have heard silicon valley angel investing but for me sure. as someone who likes to think that he is curious intellectually and and learns about the world and does this podcast and we're on episode this will be around about episode 150 so i might be about halfway to your uh, bar of, of knowing having an idea about what i'm doing um
1: you think you'll get a proper microphone by episode 200 <laughs> so I'm, right uh, here 150 and using airpods what the heck's going on here
0: Right here, that is all right. All
1: right, there—that's my boy. SM7B. I'm not fucking. S7. I'm not fucking oh, about, S- Jason. All right. Well, you know, you come on the podcast and you're in your bedroom and you got AirPods on, or you I... not even have AirPods on. You got you got <laughs> you got cabled headphones on, but you do have the short SMB7. I, is that right? Um, SMB or SM7? That's the SM's. best microphone, by the way
0: sm7b we're S7. doing it cloud lifter Audien yeah, id14 we've got it this setup is here don't let Hi. it don't let it fool you and but yeah so silicon valley is your
1: mom gonna come in with fish sticks <laughs> <laughs> she coming in with fish sticks any minute now uh that Charles. is
0: that's actually well because we're running about 15 minutes late i've had to text her and let her know that she needs to push those back a tiny little bit
1: push um, the fish sticks back a little bit yeah just little on. bangers and mash coming what do you got nice on that's some classic mushy british food for you there any mushy peas there? Some chips. Tea. I like that fish tea, and chips and the some mushy Yorkshire peas. Tea. Oh, I love a little tea. I'm having a little tea right now.
0: Hey, I like it. We did you come in? Did you walk in with kombucha as well?
1: No, I, I don't. I'm, I don't fuck with kombucha. I'm an adult. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a capitalist. We don't fuck with kombucha. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm not paying you eight dollars for some like fermented like whatever. Come on. Something that someone else has already digested. Yeah, I don't yeah, I'm not fucking with kombucha. Sorry. Got you. Right. So That's quotable. I think that's quotable. Somebody put that on the uh, the the Reddit sub. <laughs> Jake House not fucking with kombucha. <laughs> right.
0: need to
1: get a Reddit sub of
0: Silicon Valley, right? Angel investing. It, it's a words that get thrown around a lot. I want to come to Floyd Mayweather, angel investing Silicon Valley and I want to learn how to throw a jab. I want to understand the structure of the industry. I don't know what seed extension is. I don't know what series A or series B or any of this bullshit. I want to know how the industry works. Can you can you tell us how the industry works, Jason?
1: Um yes, I can. So, uh there are companies being started all the time, right? There are mom and pop companies. Uh there are pizzerias, there are movies and CDs created. The, and this is all entrepreneurship going on in the world, right? Somebody might start a design agency. Somebody might start a PR agency, uh, dry cleaner. You get the idea. And these are all great businesses. They can employ people. Sometimes the owner can make a a, a nice salary uh, and be independent. Sometimes they can make even more than that. They can make a life for themselves, right? Uh, so that's all fine and well. What we do in Silicon Valley and in the venture capital industry is we look for the outlier companies, companies that can grow at a velocity that would be considered unrealistic, inhuman, bizarre uh, to other people, and the best analogy I heard on this is that you know venture capital is like jet fuel; it's for a ta- rocket fuel. You, you wouldn't put rocket fuel like on a, a Vespa. <laughs> Uh, would not work out well like you 're not trying to go mock whatever um, you know on those uh, those vehicles, so those vehicles are fine they don 't need a lot of money to start them. You can start a consulting firm for zero dollars today. You can just literally put up a free website and you can email a thousand people and say here 's what I do and you know get three customers the The businesses we invest in uh, you know if you were to look at one like Uber or robinhood um, or com dot com these are businesses that were intended to impact hundreds of millions of people a billion people you know large numbers of people and uh you know that is a different type of business and it requires a different type of capital and a different type of plan most of those businesses fail and when they do fail they fail hard so you have to also have a different expectation if you're starting a consulting firm you're really not gonna fail. There's nothing really at stake, right? Like, what if I if we set up a website today and say, we're gonna do a podcast consulting company, you know, C&J Podcast Consulting, and we're gonna teach people how to do podcasts, like, okay, if we get one customer a year, or 10, or 100, like, okay, I guess it's a success. It's more than zero. Whereas with a startup like Uber or Calm, you know, you're you're building something that is more complex, um, and has a smaller chance of success. But if it does succeed, oh, my Lord, it could change the fabric of society and humanity forever. Uh, and many companies have, like Google, Facebook, Uber, Airbnb. These things are changing society. And in order to do that, it's sort of an Olympic-caliber sport. Um, uh, so that is the difference right now. You know, that's That's the main difference in the type of companies we invest in. And so that's where most of the confusion comes in. People want to start a company that makes, you know, ginger beer or tea, uh, or they're doing a company that has a noble purpose. And it's like, these do not qualify for the one in a thousand or one in 10,000 chance of an outlier. Therefore, you're not fundable by this industry. And that turns people off sometimes to in the industry and they don't understand it. Or if I told you you're going to start 10 businesses, six are going to zero, the seventh and eighth will return half the amount of money you put into them, the ninth will return two or three times what you put into it, and maybe if you get lucky, the 10th or the 20th or the 30th might return more than 30x. You put in a dollar, you get more than 30x. So it's a type of gambling and risk-taking that is very unique, very confusing from the outside, and even from the inside, um, the people who do this kind of gambling struggle with their own psychology and their own existence. So it's no doubt that it's confounding to everybody.
0: Yes. To begin with, are tech stocks where the money goes due to scalability? Is it just the fact that that has the ability to really rock it off? Say it again. Tech stocks seem to be where yeah. you're that's what you're talking about here is is the reason where most are you about
1: public ones pardon or private ones you talk about public or private public yeah so i mean if you look at public stocks yeah i mean if you invested in google netflix or amazon <laughs> you know at their ipo or any time after the first five years of those companies you'd be pretty happy today i think uh facebook as well and so the the companies are getting much larger today than they ever have. And I think they've become um very um resilient because they've been adding multiple business lines in a way that previous companies didn't. So it used to be companies were one trick ponies. They went public in year six, seven. Now you have companies staying private and going publics in year ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. And they're they're much larger businesses, they're much stronger businesses. And then once they get public, they get more ambitious. They start doing acquisitions and they become super resilient. So the resiliency of a company like Facebook having bought WhatsApp, Oculus, and Instagram, three huge bets, or Google having bought Android, um, YouTube, much stronger businesses. And then even in the classic businesses like Disney having bought Pixar, Marvel, uh, and Star Wars, you know those companies now make them so much stronger. That they're not reliant on just the Disney IP, you know, Snow White and and Mickey Mouse,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Uh, which you know those things could fall out of favor. But now they get this new life because they have all the Marvel characters, all the Pixar characters, and all the Star Wars characters, and all those worlds to just keep building and building and building. So, uh, I I think buying those kind of stocks, I'm, and I'm not a public stock picker. It feels like there's very little downside because. The idea that Amazon or Google would go away uh, anytime soon or perhaps even in our lifetime s- does not seem realistic. Um, we did see Yahoo go out of business. So previously when they were one trick ponies like Yahoo was uh, or other companies, yeah, it might be more, it might be possible like you know, buying eBay or something. That's been a pretty resilient business, but you know, they've, they've got one business really and you know, that, that does make it um, difficult. I get it. So more let's go it. back to the but We're the investing private. in private companies. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back to private. Where do you find these people? Are you walking down the street? You see some guy who's got a T-shirt
1: on and says, I own a startup. Like what happens? So the way I meet people um, is, you know, I have a podcast and amongst founders, I would be, you know, a celebrity on the scale of Lady Gaga. Uh, or Michael Jordan. And then I Have you, got an out- everybody have you got an else like, like Lady Gaga? Absolutely. I'm um, wearing a new <laughs> dress right now. Um, <laughs> for those of you listening, it's uh, getting a little uncomfortable in the second half of the hour. Uh, you know, but outside of the industry, I'm a nobody, right? So when I lived in LA and I would go to industry parties, nobody would know who I was. And then when I'm in an industry party, uh, you know, I might get asked to take 10 selfies in the tech business. And it really is a popularity contest amongst uh, investors. Investors have brands and people want to be affiliated with different brands. So you you might make an analogy of like creative artist agency or Endeavor and the different agencies, William Morris Agency, whatever, in Hollywood. You get affiliated with an agency or you got affiliated as a musician with a record label. Um, You know, you uh, then become validated. You become anointed in a way. And it gives other people permission to engage with your startup or in the case of CIA and agencies or labels, music, tours, whatever, uh, movies. So a lot of what we do here is we anoint people and we fund them and then we tell them where the landmines are and we say, you know, let us know if you make it to the other side and how we can help. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's, it really is basically like you're sending, you know, um these founders into a war zone and you see who makes it to the other side. We see who who, you know, the the good news is it's not fatal. You know, and so if you fail, and two out of three or three out of four startups fail, depending on, you know, how you measure it, um, might be even greater based on, you know, the number of experiments being run today by founders. You need only start three, four, five companies to have a likelihood of success, right? So that's what I tell people when they when their first company fails is that like you know Travis's third company was Uber, you know Elon's third one, two, three, yeah, third or fourth, third and fourth companies were SpaceX and Tesla, right? So a lot of times people do their best work on that third time up at bat, fourth time up at bat. That actually seems to be a sweet spot, right? You're not like as nervous. Some people, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos. Mark Zuckerberg, they hit the home run right out of the park. Uh, that's not common. It's memorable, so there's a survivorship bias to it. The fact that those companies have become big, mm-hmm. uh, or confirmation bias, rather, uh, not survivorship. But uh, maybe it's both. Actually. It's uncommon it's amongst uncommon
0: situations, right?
1: Yeah. Um, it is very uncommon for somebody and their first company to hit a giant outlier success. But because when it does happen, it's so memorable, that it feels more common than it is, which I believe is the definition of confirmation bias, or survivorship bias. Survivorship, right? so survivorship bias is like, okay, well, these people survived, therefore there was something. You you, you the fact that they survived, you, you read something into who will survive the next time, right? the The problem with that was the the way they can, they figured out survivorship bias was they looked at planes in World War II that had actually where the bullet holes were when they landed and they found the bullet holes you know were in all these different places and they were like okay well this is what we need to fix or whatever what they didn't realize is those are the planes that made it back (laughs) got hit in the wing and didn't get hit in the cockpit or the engine so it turns out that they weren't including in the sample where the bullets were on the planes that went down because they couldn't recover those planes because they blew up in the sky and crashed (laughs) (laughs) those ones got hit in the cockpit and the pilot got killed or they got hit in the engine and the gas tank exploded, right? So you get this weird, you know, bias that is, you know, not and that and that's one of the reasons why people who are in the VC industry are constantly trying to figure out the cognitive frameworks and biases. And there's podcasts just about these things and there's people studying just these things. So that we as people placing the bets can try to figure out a model to unlock this. Like it's the fountain of youth or something, right? Uh, and, and that's a major problem for people is that that the randomness that occurs here fools people, right? Um, and, and then they start thinking, oh, well, I hit Uber, therefore I'm a great picker. And, and that's just not the case, right? Like I don't think I'm a great picker. I think I have a great network and I have great relationships.
0: Uh, Sounds like there's a lot of chaos going people. on.
1: Yeah, I mean – One way to think about this job of venture capitalist or just investor in startups is um, 99% of my time is spent on the failed companies. So let me just say that again. You know, if you invest in, you know, 100 companies over your career and you look back on the time you spent, in all likelihood, you're going to have spent something in the range of 90% on the companies that failed. The companies that succeed, you go to the board meetings, they turn over the results and you go, Well, that's more than we expected. And, and
0: you're like everyone pats everyone oh, else on the back. High fives. Just a bunch of
1: high fives. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, I've I've had this in the number of times in my career where it's going up and to the right. And the last thing I want to do is go, you know, hey, let's spend some time together, uh, screwing up your formula. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, just you keep working. doing you.
0: You keep on pushing whatever button you're pushing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you can study it to figure out if you can accelerate it. You can study it to figure out if there are margin issues, competitive issues. There's a lot to do, even on the successful companies. Like, when your company's scaling, you need to hire a lot of people. You need to watch out for competitors. You need to build infrastructure. You need to have things in place that keep this very fast-moving rocket ship from blowing up as it, you know, gets to orbit. Um, It's the ones that never even, you know, get the rockets to the launch pad, you know that I spend a lot of time on. It's like, okay, is the rocket finished? Great. Okay, are we going to fire the rocket? Oh, there's no jet fuel in the rocket? Okay, great. Okay. (laughs) Oh, you don't have any astronauts either? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be kind of hard to get to space without those two things. We're going to need some jet fuel. We're going to need some astronauts. Like, you know, we're going to have to finish the rocket. Oh, the rocket's not done? Oh, okay. (laughs) We've got to finish the rocket. Um, If we've got any chance to get into orbit. So it's, it's a chaotic job. The last week, just to give you a picture of my life, with over 200 investments, the last week I've spent dealing with, you know, chaos at four companies. So two percent of the companies just completely chaotic, um, you know. And with these startups, they're almost inevitably running out of money, and facing uh, existential threats externally, where Google is going to make their product free, let's say, uh, or, or you know, they're getting really well-funded competitors who then. Decide they're going to give away hundred dollar bills for fifty bucks and take all the customers, <laughs> you know, uh, which is what Lyft did with Uber and Uber did with other people. Like they get into these crazy, you know, wars of discounting, and uh, you know it's pretty scary. So, yeah, I deal with a lot of chaos. So how much and to I step in, in there? I, Sorry, Jason. How much of that's that's that why is I like you your coming in and so much and
0: massaging people and just saying, "Let's everyone chill out. Let's bring a little bit of order oh, to this a chaos." Lot.
1: Yeah, no. A big part of my job—that's why I liked your lighthouse poster so much—is like you know when you look at that lighthouse, it's like yeah, there's a giant wave. As nature doesn't, you don't get the sense that that lighthouse is going to get knocked over, right? And that's really my job. It's the job of the founder is, of any leader, is uh, to convince everybody um, that there's a plan and that we can succeed if we follow the plan uh, and we stick together and we execute at the highest level possible, our chances if we work together are greater than if we don't have a plan and we don't work together. And so a lot of what I will be talking to a founder about is, okay, what does success look like? What's the plan to get to success? Who do we need to be on the team to get to success? Okay, what are the other tactical issues going on? Oh, we're being sued by this person. Oh, we we have to get out of this lease or, oh my God, we've you know, got these competitors. Okay, great. But let, let's focus on what's the goal, what's the plan, and who do we need to execute the plan to achieve the goal? And it's very hard to stay focused. You know, when there's bombs going on uh, all over the place, it's very hard. And, uh, you know, I spent some time working on an ambulance and I was always taken by the the people who were in charge. Uh, my brother's a firefighter uh, and... Uh, uh Lieutenant and you know when you watch those leaders in really chaotic situations, they just come in with this surgical precision and this level of calm where they're running into burning buildings, or you know uh my first call on an ambulance was the night before Thanksgiving uh in maybe the late eighties, early nineties, and somebody had been stabbed right above their heart, and it was like, oh, this person could die it's this, this is a coin toss situation, and just watching the calm at which people were able to triage these situations. is always very impressive to me. And I always think about samurai or Jedi in that regard, uh, which is why there's a poster of Toshiro Mifune uh, in the office. Um, And, you know, if you look at samurais or or Jedi knights uh, who were modeled off of samurai, I think it's a very good metaphor for leadership, which is, like, these are very powerful people who don't often take out the sword, they're going to figure out solutions they're very focused and they're they know how to block out what is not essential right so there's a great scene where Qui-Gon jim is fighting darth Maul. and these uh this wall gets uh like a laser wall gets blocking the two of them and darth Maul is like pacing back and forth like a cheetah you know like in a cage and uh Gong jim just kneels down turns off the lightsaber and meditates and closes his eyes and, and you know, really, that's like, I'm going to conserve my energy here and think about what the right decision is because those doors are going to open and it's going to be chaos. And if you, if you look at a scene uh, like the movie Gladiator, there's a scene where Maximus says, listen, whatever anybody here in the army, great. Come, come next to me. We're going to fight together. Whatever comes through those doors, we have a better chance of succeeding if we fight together as one. And he gives this big ass one speech. You can look it up. Or there's another great scene in a movie called Black Hawk Down where the snipers say, listen, we got to go in and protect the pilots of that other Blackhawk, uh, drop us in. And they said, listen, we we don't know when we're going to have reinforcements. So if we're dropping you in, I need you to confirm with me that that's what you want, and that you recognize that we don't know when we can get you reinforcements, or if we can ever get reinforcements there, and we're dropping you into this hostile territory, where it's going to be the two snipers versus thousands of Somalians who are armed and are surrounding the helicopter. and." You know, that's a, I use those metaphors um, because they in each of those cases, people are working together um, and they're blocking out things that are not important and they're focused on what is important. And that really is what entrepreneurship and leadership is about, that ability to focus in, slow down, take that breath, and say, okay, this is a dangerous situation. This is a critically dangerous situation. This is a, you know, they're going to drop us into this you know situation in somalia and we're not going to get out in all likelihood but we're going to take that chance anyway and we're just going to focus and let our training and our plan execute itself you know whatever happens now those are all violent crazy situations um but those are the metaphors i choose i'm sure somebody else could come up with a, a, a much more peaceful one but god in my experience it's a fucking war i like yours uh, i like you know, your ones i like your ones running these race companies is a fucking war it really is and and that and that's just the successful ones You know, the ones that are not successful, (laughs) you know, it's, you know, it's a war and chaos. and Whilst fighting the
0: coronavirus.
1: (laughs) While fighting the coronavirus. Yeah, exactly. Like those are, and those are things that are outside of your control. You know, imagine you're in the hardware business right now, which is hard enough. You're building a hardware startup and you've got shipments coming from China or you're supposed to have your hardware solution, you know, that clients paid for and now it's, you know, lost in customs or something. Uh, There's a business disruption. Business disruption for for Apple with hundreds of billions of dollars in the bank, no problem. Business disruption with somebody with six or 12 months of runway in the bank, big problem. How much
0: of what you've alluded to there, which is your ability to work out the controllables and the uncontrollables, bring a little bit of order to this chaos, how much of that is learned and how much of that is your constitution? And if it's learned and what elements are would you be able to talk about a routine or any of the things that you do which tend to help you with that
1: regard? Well, um, I would say, you know, some folks are the product of their environments um, and that's their primary driver. And then other pro- folks are very good at adding skills. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think you could probably do both. You know, Tim Ferriss The seeker, as I call him, you know, he seeks out knowledge and he learns it and he advances um, and learns very quickly. That's kind of his thing. He just adapts and learns new skills very quickly. So it clearly can be done. Uh, But there is, at its core, I do think you know, uh, some situations that are high pressure that people uh, grow up in that do define them. And so, one theory I heard—I don't know if this is correct or has any basis—but it, it certainly is an interesting one to consider is that a lot of the great founders uh, who are good in operating in chaos and under stress had a situation where one parent loved them very much and one parent maybe wasn't as available or was actively uh, cruel or mean. And that person then had to balance and learn to solve this problem every day of their life and their childhood, right? That's interesting. Two parents, you know, one who loved them and one who was chaotic or something, and they had to just make sense and navigate that. It does ring true to me. I mean, obviously, we see over and over again immigrants really overperform in index, um, you know, in terms of the percentage of them leading very large companies uh, and their leadership ability. Something about uh, immigrant parents and, you know, the 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 work ethic that maybe people see in their parents when they work three jobs and they put in 60, 78 hours a week and they force their kids to study because they say, I don't want you to have to work 90 hours a week. Um You know, there's something positive about that, which is, you know, why it's a little bit heartbreaking that we have this nationalism where we don't want to let in the people who are taking the greatest risk in the world, leaving one country to come to another to try to make a better life. It's like those people are, you know, um, under such incredible duress um, just doing that, that they become exceptional citizens, I think, by and large, and become incredible for those countries that get to receive that gift, right? Like, if you look now in Silicon Valley, um, the the number of Indian Americans uh, who are leading companies out here is just extraordinary. Um, and we had just a massive influx of Indians uh, who suffered greatly, you know, in in their journey here and, and to build a new life here, faced racism, faced, you know, uh, having to work menial jobs to build stuff up, and an incredible work ethic and incredible. Uh, focus on education. And now Microsoft, Google, I mean, the the number of Indian Americans running companies is just stunning uh, and amazing. And now we want to not let them in to the country? It's bonkers, right? I mean, it's very sad for England. It's very sad for America.
0: How about for you? You How about you? Talk talk to me about your constitution. Talk to me about what it is that you're, or part part of your practice as well. (sighs) Talk to me about what what makes, what sets you apart.
1: Well, I definitely fall into the category of the or the archetype of like growing up in a difficult situation, Brooklyn in the 70s and 80s. Um, you know, my dad losing his bar when I was 18 years, 17 years old, uh, and and just growing up in a bar and and just seeing chaos all the time. I, I think, and then practicing martial arts for many years and running marathons. I think I just got a level of discipline and fortitude um, that you know, I think some people, maybe they have a reaction the other way. They become, you know, they give up or whatever. Um, I, for whatever reason, just grew up a fighter. And I, I mean, I still have that fighter mentality. Um, you know, they now, I'm super aware that the analogies I use, uh, you know, are these war and violent ones uh, or, you know, or nonviolence in the case of the Jedi and samurai, just violence as a last resort. So, you know, I, I am incredibly hardworking and dedicated and loyal and maybe, you know, to a fault um, at times just not letting things go, right? So I have a hard time letting things go, companies failing, you know, businesses failing, projects failing. I I just have a never-say-die attitude, which is probably long-term not a great idea uh, for returns. Being able to cut your losses and give up and move on and use that space to do another project is likely the better scenario as an investor and as an individual. Um, but, you know, I, I just don't like giving up. I like to fight until the last, you know, arrow, the last bullet. You know, I you think I'll, you work like on that moving forward.
0: You think you'll maybe try and try and try and develop that a little bit moving forward. Or is it something that you're glad is a, a curse that you have to suffer for the strengths that it gives you?
1: Yeah, I kind of like it. I'll be honest. I kind of like it. I like, you know, being against the odds, uh, you know, uh, I, I like the fear. I, I sleep better at night knowing I fought till the end, you know. And I, just, exactly, I feel like hey? that's my job. Yeah, I mean, when I'm with the founder, I always tell the founder, you know, what do you want to do? You want to keep fighting or do you want to, uh, you know, close this chapter of your life and move on to the next one? We will be here either way. If you want to keep fighting, I'll fight with you. If you want to shut the company down, or sell it for parts to Google or Facebook and spend two or three years there licking your wounds and resting, investing, and collecting a giant salary on the roof of Hooli while drinking cocktails and whatever, fine, let's do it. Um, and then we'll we'll come back in two or three years and, and kick ass again. And, and so I kind of leave it up to the founder. That's the balance I found. I, my natural you know, inclination is to fight, 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 and never give up. Uh, because I've seen so many times that you know, month 18 or month 30, a founder figures something out and the company goes supernova. And sometimes the idea is just not a great idea. And so you should, or the market conditions are just horrible and you're, and you're just fighting against something that you cannot beat. You know, like if you're fighting against like, you know, a a tsunami, like it's, you can't swim your way out of a tsunami in all likelihood, right? And you'd probably want to retreat. So there's there's a time for retreating. Um I it's just not in my nature generally. I get it. Uh, I get it. Uh, and that and I think it's I think it's actually a limiting factor at times for me. I probably should cut my losses on a lot of things and just say, Yeah, you know, it doesn't look like this business is gonna work out. I wish you luck with it and we have to focus on the winners. I just have a very hard time doing that. I know VCs who do it really well. And I'm just amazed that they can just be like, yeah, that didn't work. Um, we've committed as much capital as we want. We're going to get off the board and we wish you luck. Let us know if there's any way we can help. And I'm like, wow, okay.
0: Super rational approach.
1: Just It's, it's a much more efficient approach, I think. I, and I see VCs do it all the time. They're just like, yeah, it's not a fit for us, you know. Um, we're not going to keep going, but you know, we'll, we'll give up our board seat. And yeah, if you want to buy us out for 10 cents on the dollar, whatever, you know, it's your company, you do what you want, but they, they kind of walk away from it. Um,
0: (laughs) yeah, it must be challenging. I would find it challenging to not become emotionally invested, you know, to not have that, that part of me that, that wants more than what the figures say that has faith beyond what the balance sheet shows me beyond what the, what the stats are. I don't know. I don't know whether that's yeah. personifying. I don't know whether that's trying to, um, trying to personify businesses almost as as beings, you know, with personalities and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, in order for another door to open, sometimes you got to close one, um, and sometimes you got to reinvent yourself. So it's, uh, you know, I used to be a journalist, and you know, I think I took that as far as I wanted to take it. Um, I still dabble by doing this podcast, et cetera, but it's not exactly, I don't do it for journalistic reasons exactly. Um, And so sometimes you got to close the door on what chapter of a life in order to focus your energy on another. It's pretty much that simple. Uh, And and for founders, especially, because you you, you can't do three or four companies at once or two or three projects at once. It never really results in an outlier success, right? Uh, People look at what I'm doing, they're like, oh my God, you're doing so many things. And it's like, yeah, just... If you actually looked at what we're doing, it's all very strategic. It looks like there's a lot of activity, but it's really just two types of activity. One is providing a bunch of information to founders that help them, and two is investing in them. That's really everything we do falls into those two buckets.
0: Mm, so it looks from the outsider looking in like you're potentially spinning an awful lot of different plates. Whereas it's been been streamlined into two very discrete areas, which allows you to then scale the volume that you're doing that.
1: Correct. Yeah, I mean, we have one thing like podcasts and events and books, right? So like, oh, you wrote a book. Oh, you're doing a podcast. Oh, you're doing a lot of podcast episodes. Oh, you did a second podcast, Angel. Oh, and you're doing the launch festival and scale and founder university and angel university and angel summit. It's like, yeah, those are all one thing that's just a way to meet people in the industry and let them you know share knowledge with each other Um, and we as the hosts of the sharing of that knowledge hopefully uh, people remember our names so we can do number two invest in their companies that's it it's literally two things but you know if you looked at our asana project board or our notion or you know our customer support line whatever like you would see a lot of different activity, but they all kind of fall into those two buckets. So it's sort of like, wow, Disney does a lot of things. It's like, yeah, they do Star Wars and they do Marvel and Marvel does Avengers plus Marvel does, you know, these other brands or whatever they do. Uh, You know, people outside the Avengers, they're doing Spider-Man and, you know, um, the X-Men as well, right? But then you look at all of it. It's like, yeah, they entertain people. Okay, do they do anything else? Well, they do the parks, but that's entertaining people. They do movies that's entertain <laughs> people. They do streaming yeah. services entertain people. Okay, so they entertain people. What else do they do? They let you buy stuff that they entertained you with. Oh, okay. So I can buy like a Star Wars figure? Yep. You can buy a, you can buy a Star Wars lightsaber. You can make one yourself. You can buy a Marvel t-shirt. You can buy a Marvel lunchbox. Okay, so their business is entertaining you and then selling you merchandise that was burned into your brain because you watched and you were entertained by it. Got it.
0: It was burned so deeply that been. you forgot that they were doing it, forgot that they were doing something different.
1: I mean, what what other business do they have? You know, you look at it and say the theme parks are different or there's all these different themes in the theme park, right? They did Star Wars land. They do whatever land, this land, that land, Pixar, Cars land, whatever. And you know, They have Epcot Center, Disney World, Disneyland, whatever. It's all the same thing. They're entertaining you. You pay the money, they entertain you. And you maybe you buy something on the way out. That's it. Any other business Disney is involved in?
0: Is there something sort of symbolic or structural that people should be looking to to apply for that, which is where you have a particular skill set within your life, how can I then scale that skill set so that it then dips into other areas? I'm allowed to then iterate on that, on that particular ability.
1: It's good to understand what you're good at, that's for sure um i i like to tell people what their superpower is as i perceive it and i or i ask them like do you think your superpower is this and you know different superpowers can work for different things some people are engineers like elon's an engineer at his heart like he's he's really a physicist and engineer who knows how to build stuff and if you look at what he's building like he's really good at metal like a lot of what he does is like building parts and metal and shaping it so that it can go to space or that electric car can be lighter and go further range. And a lot of the shit he learned at SpaceX went to Tesla and Tesla to SpaceX. Like material science and engineering is what he does. Mm-hmm. And people will think like, oh, there's a lot more going on here. It's like, is there, right? Like he's an, he's, a, he's an engineer and he's a great engineer. And people, you know, look at him more like Steve Jobs or whatever. Steve Jobs wasn't an engineer, right? I, th- I think Steve Jobs is a marketer. Right, he knew it, like a packager. Like he really understood how to package and market something to people. Simplify it, maybe. Like maybe he's a, at his core. Steve Jobs was like just a great designer um, of products, right? Uh, and you know, a brand builder, right? Like a, he built a brand and packaged stuff. He's really a packager. Now that I think about it, like he made this package Apple. It meant something. It evoked something mm. simple, clean. Opening the box beyond the going into the store. Using it, all the, yeah, all the experience is, so it's, it's kind of like an experience designer. Um, yeah, Ades Kory is an experience designer. Actually, that'd probably be the best way to say it. He's an experience designer. i agree. Because the store is an experience thing, using your phone, using your laptop, opening up your phone, taking it out of the box. It's all an experience. And so, yeah, you need to know what you're good at. I'm a talker. Like, my skill set is talking. That's my superpower is talking. And uh, so I do a podcast. And then I talk to founders and I run an accelerator where you talk a lot about people's hopes and dreams and, tra- and strategies to succeed. So talking is a good one.
0: Precision with your speech is something that I think is a, a very, very underregarded regarded superpower. It's something that I encourage a lot of the people that are listening to do if they're not having a conversation with a friend for 30 minutes every week, where they're undistracted and they're talking about something that they care about and that they're genuinely engaged in. I find the process of doing a podcast and recording I found it therapeutic and sharpening and honing in terms of the skill and, and what it then enables me to do outside of that in a way that I never had before I did this and I would. Do you
1: feel more energy when you finish the podcast than when you started? Yes. Right. So you're an extrovert, uh, not an introvert. You come out of a discussion like this with more energy, more inspired than you do going into it, and people who are introverted would come out of this and feel exhausted. And they would need to take a break and read a book or take a nap or be alone. And so that is really the, ener- the energy of those two different ty- archetypes of humans, introverts versus extroverts. And knowing that, like some people, you interview them and they're just like, "I, I- this was like exhausting for me, right? Um, other people, they- they're like, great, let's do hour two. Let's do hour three. You know, they just want to keep talking. Mm-hmm. And so- You know, it's very important for you to understand what your skill set is, what your personality is, what you enjoy, and then lean into that. Because the truth is, when you're starting a company, you can always get other people to fill in. So if you're Elon and you're a great engineer, or you're Steve Jobs and you're a great, you know, experience designer, uh, or you're a great talker and, you know, or you're a great sales executive you can you can acquire those other skills from other team members you don't need to have them so this idea that there's one type of founder i get asked that all the time how do you pick the founders what founders succeed most often and the founders that succeed most often are the ones who are self-possessed and don't give up and it doesn't matter if they're introvert extrovert. it doesn't matter if they're sales marketing product developer engineer visionary talker you know uh leader manager all those different archetypes succeed all the time. There is no commonality, I don't think, other than people who are super self-possessed uh, and they're very focused uh, and they don't give up. So if you're going to look for traits, introvert, extrovert, you know what job they did previously and how well they did that job, it's probably not as important as those other softer skills, which are actually the harder ones, which is does this person uh, really care about this idea? Are they going to quit? Will they give up? Or are they going to you know, build a plan, get a team, and pursue the goal? And it really is that simple. What's the goal here? What's the plan? And who's going to execute the plan? And man, I can't tell you the number of times you know, you'll ask that to a founder and they don't have a plan and they don't have a goal. And I, I tell everybody our goal here. When they come work at Launch, our investment company, launch.co, you can see our website. It's just a simple website. Anyway, what we do here at Launch is we invest in companies, and our goal is to be the best investors in Silicon Valley. Or the best investors in the world, period. We want to be the best investors in the world. So we just work backwards to what does that mean? Well, we think it means supporting founders early. That's the tactic we're using. You know, That's the plan. And the plan is to invest in 80, 90, 100 companies a year. And in 10 years have a thousand investments and invest 10 times as much in the winners as we do in the ones that uh, fail and go out of business that's it that's the plan let's execute on it podcast big part of it podcast we get to put our founders on the podcast this week in startups we get to put investors on the podcast angelpodcast.com we get to meet new founders on the podcast I met the founder of calm.com and invested in the company because he was on the podcast and uh, it's a tool you know it's a tactic Uh, It just happens to be a tool and tactic that is in my wheelhouse as the leader of the company, right? But I make it very clear for people, this is why we're here. And you know what? It's a lot of work to work with 100 companies a year because that means we got to meet thousands and we have to sort through 10, over 10,000 to meet with a couple thousand. You know, we're going to meet with two or 3,000 companies this year after having gotten pitched by over 10,000, right? So just to start thinking about those numbers. So if we meet 2 3 4,000 companies in order to get down to 100 investments, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And you search 1 in for 50 people
0: potential payoff at the end, right? Which is that asymmetry nobody, is exactly and, why it's there.
1: And nobody knows. And nobody and there's the punchline. <laughs> nobody knows what's going to work. So, by the way, we're going to place a large number of bets meet thou- we're going to place 100 bets after meeting thousands of people after sorting through tens of thousands. And we don't actually know. And it might not work. Which one of the hundred every year is going to be the breakout. And in fact, if we all bet, if the 12 members of the team each picked two companies each, I doubt that we would, even picking 25 of them, I don't think the majority of people would pick the winner. I don't think I thought com.com would be the second best company in my portfolio. I did think Uber was going to be you know, a very successful company. Um, but I thought a billion or $2 billion company, not a $60 billion company. So I was off by 60, 30 to 60 X. <laughs> quite, quite a bit. Yeah. So even, even though I knew it was a winner, I didn't know the magnitude of it, mm-hmm. you know? And Robinhood, like a uh, stock trading app for millennials. Like I, I, I invested in that company and didn't think it was going to work. I, I thought the founders are incredible. I, I'm not sure their first idea is going to work. I think it'll probably be their second or third. And, and I was wrong. Mm. And and delighted to be wrong. You know? <laughs> it's the best way the best
0: a, way to be wrong in history.
1: Yeah, it's to place a bet and win. It would be like walking up to the to the betting window and be like, I I yeah, I'm gonna place a bet on this team and uh you, you pick the wrong team than you intended. <laughs> they give you the slip, your team loses, you go to rip up the slip and you look that you, oh, I made a mistake. Oh, I bet on the other team, oh I won. Sound fucking tester. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> fantastic right (laughs) like literally that's the job of an investor you just don't know which ones are going to win so you just basically treat everybody who's in your portfolio amazing you try to just be as supportive as possible um which is you know again it's like life is pretty simple just find the best people you can invest in them support the heck out of them if it doesn't work out and they did a good job and bet on them again
0: come back they'll do it again because they uh, I got two questions well, before we- Well, they'll f- definitely
1: do so. another company again. They may fail again, but you know, like I said, three out of four fail, then you only need to do four to get to a winner in all likelihood.
0: I get it. Uh, I got two questions before we finish up, Jason. First one, Yep. going back to podcasting, someone who's been in the space yep. for quite some time, 60 million plus plays. Is that even more now, more than
1: 60 million? Probably more, but whatever. I mean, we did 10, we've been doing it for 10 years and over a thousand episodes. So it's still a boutique podcast. I mean, we're only talking about 200,000 people listening to every episode. It's no Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. It's not millions or, of people listening to everyone. It's, you know, it's, it's a boutique podcast about a very specific niche thing. Mm-hmm. But it, that niche thing, we're better than anybody at doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so
1: I think that's what's important.
0: Been in the space for a long time. Where do you see the podcasting space evolving over the coming years? What's next? More of the same?
1: Well, I think the, I think the listening, the listenership is going to, you know, double in the next year or so because I think we're like right at this tipping point where it's starting to hit the public consciousness. And like with this election cycle, the fact that Bernie Sanders was on Joe Rogan um, or, you know, uh, that, you know, even presidential candidates are – and not just Andrew Yang, right? Like not just like the 10th person in the race mm-hmm. but, you know, the top person in the race mm-hmm. – mm-hmm. Um, is are going on podcast or people who are writing really important books are now looking at the podcast as the better way to sell their book than going to the press and consumers are realizing reading journalists and publications is fine Um, and you know once in a while there's going to be like a really important story and that's great but overall if you really want to go deep into a subject there's a podcast for it that's going to be better. And it'd be better to hear from the subject for an hour or two, than to read the story where they were quoted once or twice. That that's why journalists, the savvy ones, are getting so into podcasting. They're realizing they'll get more out of the same subjects in the same amount of time by recording it and releasing it whole. That's the big unlock. So when I had Dan Rose, formerly of Facebook and Amazon, now at Kotu, um, he's the only person who's ever worked for Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, and he did an incredible podcast. And you know, he probably would be very shy if the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, TechCrunch, Recode, or any other pe- person called him because their guard would be up. And he'd be like, okay, what's the story? Oh, you're doing an anti-Facebook story. Oh, you're doing an anti-Amazon story. Oh, you're doing an anti-Facebook and Amazon story. Oh, you're doing an anti-Oh, uh, Jeff Bezos gave away $10 billion to fight global warming and nobody has ever put up a fraction of that. Oh, but he didn't give away all of his money, so Everyone's let's criticize happy. him because yeah. he only gave away 10% of money. It's like literally the guy just gave away the largest gift in the history of giving except for Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. But I, I think it might still be the single largest gift ever. Um, puts him number three in philanthropy, I think, um, or four. Um, but it's is, not enough. I think it's Gates. And literally yesterday all the press was criticizing him. And, and the press is wondering why the top subjects – don't trust them or don't want to work with them, or why Trump's rhetoric on fake news is so powerful. The reason why Trump is able to say fake news is not because the news is fake. It's because journalists haven't been doing a great job uh, balancing out and, being, and and you know going straight down the middle with objective journalism. Because journalists have picked a side, they gave up objective journalism, and they went towards link baiting, in order to save their publications, right? Because Fox showed, if you pick a side, you win. So the New York Times is like, okay, we'll pick the left, MSNBC on the left, Fox on the right, Wall Street Journal on the right. So everybody's just picking a side and your subscriptions go up. So if you pick a side, your subscriptions go up. Anybody in the middle is toast. If you're gonna go straight down the middle, people are just like, oh, okay, well, this doesn't make me emotionally vested in what you're doing. You wanna take down Trump? Great. You wanna keep in Trump? in office and you want to troll the libs great i'll give you money for those two things but i'm not going to give you money for objective journalism right down the middle and you know journalists have responded to that market condition and you know it's a the proper decision in terms of keeping the lights on it's the wrong decision in terms of building trust with subjects the subjects just don't trust the press anymore um that you know i don't agree with trump calling the press fake news i don't think the news is fake i think they're just have an agenda and they have a point of view and a perspective now, but they're still presenting it as objective, even though it's no longer objective. Like if all these press people are on Twitter dunking on Jeff Bezos for giving away $10 billion, and then they write about Bezos, it doesn't feel objective anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It feels like they're all anti-capitalist, anti, you know, there's a group of them that are just super anti-capitalist, super socialist, You know, and it's just depressing. Like, I would rather see the, I get contacted by journalists literally nine out of 10 times it's some negative story. And one out of 10 times, maybe they're on background and I can't tell if it's negative or not. But it used to be when I got contacted 10 times, a lot of journalists in the tech business would be like, hey, have you seen anything interesting? Mm -hmm. And I'd say, yeah, you know, I'm doing this company Blockable or we got this company Uber or you should check out this company Robinhood. They're really smart folks. And they would write a profile on them and they would talk about what they were doing and why they were doing it. was super interesting like that was really great because you were presenting to the audience new stuff coming and the the only criticism was maybe the tech press is a little too cheerleadery but yeah like those advertorial type sort of things yeah not even advertorial i mean i think the tech industry press were fans of technology that's how it started like if you were writing about tech you probably loved pcs in the 80s and software in the 90s and the internet and the Late 90s into 2000s, you loved gadgets. If you're doing a gadget, you just were a fan of the technology yeah. and what it could do. And you love the people in the industry. And then the industry got so big that, you know, it, it needs to be criticized because there are bad things that have occurred. Um, but we've lost that magic of like, hey, let's discover something new and write about it. They just don't, journalists don't do it anymore because it doesn't, nobody clicks on it. Like you don't get clicks on Twitter for saying, Jason invested 100000 in this new company that's going to try to change housing. Let me tell you about it. Like, that's not going to get as much as, you know, Bezos gave away only 10% of his money and he didn't guarantee how he's going to give it away or over what time period or who he's giving it to. And, like, they'll find every reason to criticize him and how he gives away $10 billion. Just Just, instead of saying, wow, amazing. Who would like to give $10 billion next? What an amazing gift. <laughs> because America's not spending on, you know... What countries are spending $10 billion fighting global warming? I don't know. Yeah. This is a great example. You know, we should be having him on, we should be having Bezos on TV high fiving him. And instead, they're going to be like, oh, well, you have too many drivers driving around causing pollution, driving, you know, sprinter vans around, or you're killing the environment with cardboard. It's like, okay, yeah, that, there's a story about cardboard. And sure, we could write that story, but can we just take a moment to let that sink in that he's, Decided to put $10 billion of his own money. It's a big number towards, you know, raising awareness for global warming and solving it.
0: And the crazy thing between those two situations, the first one being you've done a thing or this is something which is happening and Bezos putting up $10 billion, is both of those things are news. Like that is news. It's a definition of news. A thing has happened which is potentially newsworthy. It's just that one of them has been spun a lot harder and been used as this... Crutch to push what some people would call an agenda, and I think what you've mentioned there about Trump—it's the fact that the they say the best lies contain elements of truth, right? And that's why the you're devil able mixes to do lies
1: that. with truth. The devil mixes lies with truth. There it is. The Exorcist, <laughs> William <laughs> Peter Blatty. It's a F- really, really great book if you want to read it. Yeah, and Legion, the follow-up—really good books. I watched. I watched Legion. Is that the right.
0: one where they're in a they're in a, like motel type uh, cafe thing and nursing then home? All hell breaks loose.
1: Lots of bad things happen. Anyway, the books are better because the books are really about Catholicism and God and pain and suffering and why would a just God allow suffering and the devil and evil? So it's really through the lens of Catholicism. You know, a priest trying to come to terms with his own faith. Um and it just has a little bit of like this horrific edge to it, uh, with murder and why does murder and pain and suffering exist in the world? Like there's a scene in it where there's a a group of people who have no it's a little graphic, but it's a group of people who don't have uh the ability to feel pain. Like there's something wrong with their nervous system, so they don't feel pain. So if you were to put a cigarette out on their leg, or if a cigarette fell on their leg and burned them, they wouldn't feel it. And there's just a scene, I always remember is very evocative of a little girl who was suffering that disease who wanted to look out the window. She climbed on to a radiator and the radiator turned on when she was looking out the window and she got burned on her legs and didn't feel it. Why would God allow that to happen, right? And th- th- that's actually, you know, why that movie is so powerful is because even though you, you don't get that from the movie explicitly, it's kind of this undertone where you're trying to figure out like the nature of evil. Why does evil exist in the world, right? It's like one of those core, you know, uh mysteries of life. Like, why 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 do people do evil things? Like, what is the point of it all? Why do people blow things up? Why is there terrorism? Why are there murderers, like serial killers, whatever? In a world that's got but a God in it, it it's in a cinema, difficult
0: a difficult question to answer. Very difficult.
1: Well, we got to God. It only took us an hour. So, uh, <laughs> uh, final question.
0: Final, final question, Jason. Yeah. Do you have any cool tech on yeah. your radar at the moment?
1: Cool tech on my radar. Um, I am uh, particularly interested in robotics outside of factories. I think it's a very um, you know interesting space that is going to um, get very big. Um, I'm also very interested in education, That is self-paced and occurs, you know, online uh, or in small groups. Uh, But that is uh, student-led kind of, you know, um, self-instruct. What do they call it? Um, There's a term for when it's student-led. But, um, you know, I I like to look at the areas. I, I look at markets where technology hasn't had a huge impact. And for me, you know, robotics, people doing like manual labor that sucks is one. And that could be very interesting for humanity. Um, And then another one is housing and even housing plus robotics is kind of interesting to me, like robots building houses Mm. Um, education where the education system is super screwed up in the United States. I'd love to see more and more solutions for, you know, we're seeing these ISAs uh, income sharing agreements where people agree to share $30,000 worth of their salary over the next five years in exchange for you teaching them how to be a programmer or something like that. Uh, Or there are websites that'll teach you, you know, very niche websites, one to become a dancer like steezy.co. We invested in S-T-E-Z-Y.co. And, you know, or brilliant.org, which teaches people math. This idea that they're going to be a vertical site that's just really good at teaching you one thing uh, is fascinating to me because people go for these... Giant educations that cost fifty thousand a year, and they put themselves into a quarter million dollars in debt, and then their first job out of school is forty or fifty k. So, you know, after taxes, if they're making forty thousand dollars and they're two hundred debt, they got a five to one ratio of you know after tax income to their debt load. It's just never going to be paid off, right? Even if they lived with their parents and paid off. $20,000 a year and lived off the other 20000 it would take them 10 years to just get to zero. They'd be 31 years old before they were able to even consider having any kind of a life. It's bizarre. Um, so yeah, I, I just look at those big, broken markets, things that are hard um, and just try to think as an investor, God, I can't wait for a founder to take on this one. Mm. And Blockables, block, B-L-O-K-A-B-L-E, blockable.com is doing modular housing and i'm super excited about that cafe x is doing robotic coffee machines that will make coffee 24 hours a day in places where you can't get a good cup of coffee give you food all with like a robotic arm and you know people are like oh that seems like overkill it's like yeah it's overkill until you start making like a cold foam you know dirty chai and you're getting espresso from here and you're getting the chai from the tap and then you're putting some cold foam on it right and then you put a donut on the side or a scone okay so now the robotic arm's done four or five things right you start thinking every year the robotic arm does one or two more steps right eventually the robotic arm could be making a hamburger or a pizza or whatever it is right so there, there's coffee is just I think the first area where you'll start to see robots be able to prepare a cup of tea or coffee and, and do it perfectly when you know when a human doesn't
0: I love the fact that coffee's the first frontier for robotics to get into. It's like we all require it. It's a, a human right to have coffee.
1: You know, just robots outside of the factory. In a factory, it makes total sense. Like move this over here, stamp it, move it down the line. It gets a little more complicated when Zoom is trying to make pizza, right? Like pizza is probably the 50th thing on the list you should do. <laughs> coffee is like the first, you know, or the first might be just, yeah, I, mean, I think coffee is a pretty good first. Actually. Coffee is definitely the first. Um, we can
0: agree on that, Jason.
1: Well, it's the first time I, you know, I looked at every single robotics company and only one of them, Cafe X, had done everything soup to nuts. Like they, There was no human intervention. And then when you look at the pizza, you looked at the burger, there was still a human who had to kind of keep an eye at the robotic arm and you had to have humans in the store. Once you, I mean, once you start putting humans in the store, it's like, well, okay, what's the point? Right? A human the human could have done the thing, yeah. Things. Yeah, I mean, then that doesn't mean there won't still be people, you know, just like cars may have replaced horses, like, they're still not, still, horses still get to exist, right? And we just may not have, you know, thousands of horses suffering in the middle of London or Newcastle. Is that, wait, you're in Newcastle? Correct, yeah, up north. By the, Spa- you by the Spanish city?
0: What Spanish city?
1: Spanish city, is that, the Spanish city, isn't that like a... Outside of Newcastle, there's a thing called Spanish City, which is a um, Spanish City is like an amusement park. Are you like thinking? A, like, are you like thinking
0: a... Newcastle, Australia?
1: No, hold on a second. Spanish City. Give one second. Spanish City. What's...
0: If I've lived in the northeast of England for thirty-one years and there's a Spanish City near me and I've never heard of it, I'm going to be really embarrassed.
1: Um, Spanish City is a dining. Uh, a dining and leisure center in Whitley Bay. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> town in North Tennessee. Is that near you or no?
0: Whitley Bay is about 10 miles from where I am, but you've just picked, like, what is this? What is Spanish? Is it just a place, like a restaurant or something? Why do you know about this?
1: Well, because it's in um, a famous song called Tunnel of Love by a band called Dire Straits. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, where Mark Knopfler spent a lot of time at the Spanish city. Um, and he wrote a famous line, like the Spanish city to me when we were kids. You can look it up.
0: It's just some gaff in a Whitley Bay. Club. It's just some place. I'll go, Next time I go for fish and
1: chips on the seaside,
0: I'll pop into Spanish city. And they city. actually,
1: by the Spanish city, put the lyrics to that song, Tunnel of Love. You know who Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits are, of course. Mm-hmm. Wait, now, when they, when they say Geordie boy, where does a Geordie boy come from?
0: Okay, so a Geordie is the colloquial term for people from Newcastle. So you have Geordie's from Newcastle. That would be uh, right. Brian, jo- Brian Johnson from ACDC, Geordie. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Mark you, Knopfler, uh, considers you, himself you, like a Geordie You're a Geordie boy.
0: Technically, technically, I'm a smoggy because I'm from Middlesbrough, which is about 40 miles south of here. And my dad oh. would be a Mackham because he's from Sunderland, which is, so you've got the three big cities, Newcastle, Middlesbrough, and Sunderland. It's all very, mm-hmm. uh, all very tight-knit.
1: Um. yeah what do they call 40. people from, what, like do call people from uh, what do they call people from Brooklyn what do they call people from Brooklyn bridge and tunnel is a derogatory term from anybody who had to take the bridge or tunnel into Manhattan so that could be Queens or Bronx or New Jersey even okay yep. Um. no if you're just from Brooklyn you're from Brooklyn <laughs> kind of stands for itself <laughs> well yeah <laughs> it I mean I'm uh, from
0: I'm from Middlesbrough but you, you, let's get let's come up with something we need to do a rebrand Let's get a new brand up.
1: Well, no, there was a, and there's a famous song called Sailing to Philadelphia that Mark Knopfler wrote, and it's about um, – it's actually one of the most beautiful songs ever written, and he, and he uh, did the vocals with James Taylor. But it's about um, the people who, built, who um, drew the Mason-Dixon line, which was Charlie Mason and Jeremiah Dixon, mm-hmm. and those were two English surveyors. Um, and uh, I believe Jeremiah Dixon – it was the Geordie boy. So he was a Geordie boy who did the Mason-Dixon line in America. Good heritage. Surveyors.
0: Great great heritage. Then. Yeah. Um, Jason, we made it, man. We made it. Thank
1: you very much. We so, did it. Made it to the end. Been an absolute pleasure. All right. Uh, I'll let me know when the pod comes out. I'm, I'm glad to be at episode 150. And uh, let me know when you plan on leaving the lighthouse.
0: <laughs> you know, I used to have, I used to have, and I promise you, and I will, I can send you a photo to prove it, I used to have right there, that same size, Brooklyn Bridge
1: really I promise you I, why is that
0: why did I change Do you
1: had an affinity uh, well that's a good question but why the Brooklyn bridge didn't start with that
0: I liked it I, well, the geometric Brook- pattern so it's taken from the um it's taken from the bridge and you can see the slats yeah. running away from you and you can see all of the wires running up and across and I just found yeah. it I found it very mesmerizing I found it very beautiful um, and then I have you walked across it yet what was that
1: have you walked across the Brooklyn Bridge?
0: I haven't, no. I went to a stag do. We, you would call it a bachelor party. We call it a stag do. I went to a stag do in New York last year um, and I didn't get to spend any time go ahead and, uh, outside of uh, outside go the home.
1: Go ahead and walk over the Brooklyn Bridge. A lot of people do it every day mm-hmm. and you'll uh, be part of history if you go do it. It's pretty. It's a pretty amazing experience to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge. I used to ride my bike across the Brooklyn Bridge all the time.
0: I want to stand in the spot where my photo was my photo the photo that was there yeah. i also want to find out I, I can't find out where that lighthouse is so one day a listener a listener will tell no me. it's
1: very simple you take a picture of that lighthouse and you just put it into google reverse image search you'll find it
0: there we go that's why i get paid the big bucks
1: that's <laughs> perhaps yeah <laughs> all right man thank Great you to be on the pod.